This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE IntelliNews. Putin's built a financial fortress, yet incomes have been flat or falling for the last six years. Now the propensity to protest is rising, and Putin's facing down the West, playing a weak hand, but playing it well. Does he have a plan at all? Isn't it all just tactics? Or does there some, is there some sort of ideology that lies behind? I talked to historian Sean Gilori, who is from the Center for Russian and Eastern European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, about where Russia's going and how it's going to get there. So, Sean, um, good to talk. Uh, yeah. I, I just wanted to have a chat um, about what's going on in general, in so much as, you know, we're following all the details and, and there's the Ukraine story and the Crimea story and then the whole economic thing uh, that Russia's sort of stagnating, the Tsar line, and, and real incomes is the problem that... Although the economy is recovering, there's no trickle down whatsoever. Right. And while you've got lots of good stories on the corporate side, like Gazprom shares, for example, just jumped nearly, was it, 36% in the space of two weeks and added some crazy $25 billion to the capitalization. Um, and Russian companies are paying the highest dividends in the world by a factor of two. On the other side, you've got people in the street whose lives are just sort of grinding on, they're getting depressed, propensity to protest has gone up, um, the retail's not responding, uh, and they're feeling down in the mouth, you know, they're, they're not feeling any of this. And the Kremlin's sort of caught between the two of them. I mean, on the one hand, it's sort of protecting itself against sanctions from the states and sanction-proofing the economy, which I would argue it's done very well. But then you've got the mm -hmm. broader impact of sanctions, which is, you know, to depress this growth, this this war mentality that the, uh, the Kremlin, right. particularly the central bank, has. And while you've got reserves at an all-time high, you've got growth in the last quarter at 0.8%, which was way below all of the uh, forecasts. So it's, it's sort of working and it's not working. And I'm trying to get my head mm -hmm. around, like, you know, whether Russia's in a good place or... A bad <laughs> I, I think what I think is that I, I think the um, you know given all of the the figures that you just gave and, and figures that you know you're far more um, you know knowledgeable about than I am I, I see that the problem is mostly an ideological one and a one of a vision um, and, and that is as you said it's it's caught between these two kind of places where on the one hand you have pretty decent, you know, performance for some of the companies like Gazprom, the growth isn't great, but, you know, by world standards, is it really out of the norm? Um, and you have a more disgruntled kind of stagnant um, population that, and I think that, you know, a lot of people talk about the way the Kremlin uses the 1990s, right, as a political weapon to uh, justify its 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 power. But, you know, most people's memories now, I think, are in the mid-2000s, so during the good times. So I think there, there are more expectations, and I think the Kremlin is reluctant, doesn't want to, or is incapable of coming up with a vision of what a future Russia would be that would tell its citizens, look, this is what, you know, the future for your children could look like. Do you think, 
I mean, there's a plan. Um, I mean, if you, t- if you step back and take really broad brushstrokes, then the 90s were a write-off. That was Yeltsin. Right. And um, it was crazy. And the Russians ironically hate Yeltsin, whereas he's seen as yeah. this democratic savior in the West. And then Putin came in, who ironically is hated in the West, but seen as a savior by the Russians. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And it... First 10 years, well, was about the bounce back. But then you got into the noughties and then it really did boom. And the, the living in Moscow, as I was at the time, um, there was this huge sense of optimism. You know, just yeah. everybody was running around doing things, building things. And, you know, incomes were booming and people were buying cars and, and building dachas and going on holiday to the Maldives. And it became more or less a normal country. Mm-hmm. And 2008 was a shock. But yes, you know th- that's the economics. But then there was the 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 whole you know Crimea and the exhaustion of the the petro driven model that came together around 2012-2014, and Putin flagged this this potential problem with the West uh, at his famous speech in Munich in 2007. Yeah, and then in 2012 he started rearming, and so you had this boom in the noughties, but then you went into this new phase of like conflict with the West, where basically I, I understand it as Putin just gave up on ever having any decent relationship with the West and armed, uh, got ready for a war. And to finish, the, we're now into a new phase where he, he feels like the, the rearming is, is sufficient in order to mm-hmm. face down the West. I mean, they wouldn't win a war, but the West can no longer start a war. And um, now he's going back to dealing with the uh, prosperity that he sacrificed in order to do mm-hmm. the rearming. And that's what the May Degrees, the National Products uh, Projects are about. That's what the Gazprom story is actually connected to that too because they, they sacked a whole bunch of people at Gazprom and clearly with the state-owned enterprises, they're now demanding like it's not enough to make lots of cash. Now you've got to do it efficiently. And you have, right. to share, <laughs> you have to share the wealth with the state. So this is a new mm-hmm. phase, but it, it's not clear at all if it's going to work. And in fact, at the moment, it's not working. Yeah, and I think a lot of it, you know, going going back to, you know, this narrative that you just point out, I think, you know, the way I see it is that you're right. I think Putin basically threw up his arms beginning in, you know, with that speech in 2007 and, and just felt that from his perspective, the Americans in particular just weren't reliant partners um, and and kind of their efforts to repeatedly dismiss Russia and its interests. He just decided to take a more independent course. Uh, but now the question is, is, well, how do you how do you normalize relations? And I think this is one of the things that's hanging over uh, Russia's resurgence of its, you know, interests both around its border states, but also its ability to project power in the Middle East and and make you know situations on the ground in a geopolitical sense impossible or more difficult, one should say, for say the United States to uh, exercise its power without considering Russia or even considering China. Uh, but the thing is, is that this hasn't. This real, this tension hasn't broken through to create a new you know new rules of the game, which is what I think the the Russians' foreign policy wants. Right? They want to return to a kind of détente where you have a respect of spheres of influence, and you have some kind of respect for you know uh, you know pulling back unilateral adventurism. Isn't but this, will this? Um, 
isn't hmm? this all tactical though? I mean, Russia's starting with a very weak hand. Yes. And it's basically playing against the, the established uh, situation. And so there's a chink uh, that can be exploited in the Middle East. So they've gone off and done that. You know, yeah. you know the, the entry was, was via Syria. And now he's actually, Putin's had a lot of success with, with the Saudis because the Saudis happen to be super pissed off with the Americans because of the mm-hmm. shale thing that suddenly... The, the the Americans are pumping all this oil that never did before, and they just screw the Saudis, you know, pump our own oil, and uh, that relationship has changed fundamentally, and so th- there's an opportunity. And and again, bogging things down in Ukraine, um, it's the same thing. It's a sort of tactical yeah. move to cause a problem um, so that you have to deal. But none of this yeah. is an ideology. None of this is a strategy. No. This is just, you know, what can we do to make things difficult so that people have to deal with this? Right, right. And I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, you don't have a, a grand strategy. And frankly, too, you know, you, um, Russia's uh, ability to project power, particularly soft power, despite all the hysterical headlines in the American press, is really subscribed, you know, circumscribed. I mean, they just don't have the cultural influence that they did with uh, with the Soviet Union in terms of, you know, nobody wants to really adopt their economic model. Nobody's that interested in, they're not even, don't have much of a political ideological model that's inspiring. Uh, and so their ability, I mean, you're, I think you're absolutely right that they're only able to exploit various weak points to insert themselves. And I think they're banking on that this might give some sort of you know, for them to realize all of this talk of a multipolar world. But the truth is, the matter is, is that the Russia just isn't in parity with the United States. And I think they know that. Um, this it's, might it's be why a, they're getting... It's been effective in Europe, though. I mean, the thing is, the Europeans, particularly the Germans, are sufficiently worried that um, it actually works to the extent you've got Heiko Maas. Uh, and, and, you know, on top of this, they've been gifted Trump. Um, yeah, you know, you, <laughs> exactly. You, you listen to, to the new German foreign minister, Mass, uh, and he's basically saying out loud, like, it's all over between us and the States, that we, we you know, whatever our wow. problem is with, um, with, with Russia, um, we don't want to be under the U.S. security umbrella anymore. And Macron has also come out with calling yeah. for a European... Um, this is a major change. Um, it is which, a major change. But, yeah, but I think it's also... Russia's hands, you know? Yeah, it does. And it's it also goes, I mean, you know, speaking as a, you know, somebody as a historian, this also is a realignment that's more in geopolitical norm. I mean, I think the post-war period uh, in terms of American hegemony over the European continent is historically unprecedented. And, uh, you know, this can't last forever, particularly for states like Germany and France who actually have to live there, right? You know, any, any policy that the American government uh, takes and, you know, Trump is a good example of this. They have to live with the possible real-world consequences of it because they have to deal with the their very large neighbor to the east, uh, and and its ability to dis- disrupt particularly border states like Ukraine, uh, and make the the European neighborhood you know <laughs> quite difficult to live in. So you know Germany and and France, but I think probably Germany more so is returning to its older uh, positioning towards trying to balance itself. Uh, between you know Western powers and and Russia, mm. and Germany has a particularly close relationship with um, with Russia. I, I was just right. looking at the 
the trade statistics and and the EU Russia trade has gone from something over 300 billion down to 200 billion. Uh, it's lost a third of its turnover, and yet German trade has gone up in the same period. Uh, and they mm. always had this fascination with the East, um, and that they're trying. And, and also Merkel's terrified of a of a war in Ukraine in Europe's backyard because. You know, that would be destabilizing for the whole region, apart from the destruction it would cause. And then you have a flood of refugees on top of that, which you've already got to some extent. Isn't his policies at home uh, also tactical in so much as they, um, well, they do have choices there. But what he's done is he's taken uh, the power of the states. He's created all this extra money by the various you know, tax changes and the dividend policy that the state-owned enterprises have to pay more money um, and the increase in the VAT rate. And then they're just going to take all this money and throw it at the economy, do massive <laughs> in- infrastructure investments and social spending, which in effect is a subsidy to everybody in order to get the economy working. But again, it's not an ideology. It's it's just sort of tactical, like, what can we do today that will make things better? So let's build some bridges and pay teachers twice as much. And then things will get better. But there's nothing in that program about improving yeah. the investment environment. There's nothing in there <laughs> about property laws. There's nothing in there yeah, about it's a, it's putting reforms. out fires. So it's all tactical again. Yeah, and there's nothing in there really to... Yeah, yeah, and it, it, there's nothing there too, and this is something that I'm I particularly am fascinated with because it, it's a kind of perennial problem for Russia. Uh, you know, besides certain periods, uh, is its ability to haunt it has, uh, particularly of the younger generation coming up in terms of their connections with the world, their their knowledge, their education, their. Tech technical knowledge. And I think that really move from that more tactical to to strategic planning for the future, I think it's going to have to loosen up uh, a lot of its intellectual and and business environment to really harness, to get, to get, you know, young Russians to look more inward rather than looking outward. But isn't exactly the opposite happening? (laughs) Um, that's the thing that's, this is what they have, this is what I think they, they really need to take advantage of because I'm, I'm continually struck by the levels of creative output that, uh, young Russians in particular have. And a lot of it seems to not be the the state is reluctant to really harness it. They're reluctant to open things up to a point where young people who have this creativity can function and feel, be satisfied uh, and not look for an escape, you know, some way to escape to the West or to the United States for higher salaries, for more creative freedom, for more opportunity. This is one of the problems, and, and this is a political problem. But, I mean, that hasn't actually... I mean, people talk about the brain drain and what have you, but actually there's so much opportunity and money and jobs and, and you know, growth in Russia itself that um, people haven't needed to leave um there's plenty to do at home and mm-hmm. you know the, the wages particularly in the big cities um but they're sufficiently high and actually competitive in many ways uh to, mm-hmm. to the west although the average you know rostat uh, average is, is much much lower um and yeah. i think you've got a sort of disenfranchisement they're feeling disenfranchised the, the the young people but having said that you know if you 
go and work in the private sector and you work in whatever it is, retail or tech or, or services, then the whole state thing doesn't really affect, you know, your possibility to build a career on the ground uh, is actually pretty good, particularly as a young po person. I mean, it really has been a young person's um, transformation, this. Yeah, perhaps my, my where I'm looking is somewhat biased because I, of course, see a lot of uh, friends who are in, say, higher education who are, you know, have lots of complaints about restrictions, their ability mm. to work, uh, budget cuts, this type of thing. And, and I, I find all of them incredibly talented people, um, you know, speak multiple languages, very highly educated. Uh, and they, they feel that uh, a lot of their ability to work is, is, can be circumscribed at one point or another. Because my friends, uh, they're all mainly entrepreneurs of one sort or another. Mm -hmm. And I have friends like, you know, from, from publishing journalists, uh, but music, TV producers, actors, uh, and, and they're all having a great time. In fact, I had this group of friends who I met, you know, in the first week I arrived in Moscow in 93. And so we're all now, you know, just turned 50. We have wives <laughs> and teenage children. And that group uh, are all millionaires. Uh, they all set up. Wow. You know, one, one did a contact lens business. Another one was doing clothing, uh, retail. Another one uh, was a music editor at a magazine and set up a TV production. And now he's like making, he's the biggest domestic producer of soap operas. Uh, and they've all flourished. But of course, they were all like a sort of intelligentsia. Um, and they were all, you know, active people in that whole chaos of the 90s who were, who were making the new things, uh, nightclubs and restaurants and what have you. Um, so they're, they're exceptional. But, you know, they, they yeah. do epitomize that the, there was lots of opportunity. And if you put your, your nose to the grindstone, then there was lots of things you could do. And I think today as well, I mean, talking to the companies that we do, um, who tend to be in the real sector, the non-political non ones, uh, mm -hmm. they're all getting extremely professional. Um, you know, yeah. They're not really concerned with politics. They're concerned with EBITDA and you know, cost of goods and uh, distribution in this giant market. That's the other thing. If you have a good idea in Russia, if it works, you make a huge amount of money simply because there's 150 million people. So let me ask you a question then, you know, since you cover the business environment really closely and, and you're vast, vastly more knowledgeable about it than I am, why hasn't that translated into more foreign investment and more, more looking at Russia as a place of, you know, possible economic activity and investment? Uh, I think it's a mood thing. Um, look, the irony is that if I interviewed the guys at Leroy Merlin, this is like a French DIY store. It's actually an enormous company. And they have the only warehouse they have outside of France, which is their home market, is in Russia. The same with Next, a retailer, English one for clothes. The only warehouse they have is in Russia. And the companies who are in Russia... Uh, and the guy from Leroy Martin was saying it's a gold mine. You know, this is a fantastic market. We do very well, but the barriers to entry are extremely high. It's very difficult. And mm. the trouble with Russia is it's so quirky that uh, unless you go there and go native and spend a huge amount yeah. of time <laughs> and money, then you can't work because everything is different or, or works differently. 
Um, and it mm-hmm. means only the biggest companies with a long horizon can do that. And, and we saw this in, in the German companies that, you know, Germany used to have, it has the most companies by a factor of 10 of the international companies. So whereas the French, the yeah. English, Italian have about four or 500 registered foreign company, companies in Russia, the Germans had 6,000. And that number's recently fallen wow. to about four and a half thousand. And yet they just invested... Uh, a record three billion dollars into Russia, these companies, and so you're having mm-hmm. this concentration. And what you're getting is even these relatively large German companies that were already established, one and a half thousand have pulled out because they found it difficult. Whereas the ones that have remained have plowed every penny they're making back into growing and are very happy and are making huge amounts of money. And this is also a function of the way Putin's doing it, I think. It's, it's the, the, the business environment that he's building um, favors large companies. It favors large mm-hmm. state-over companies on top of that. And the foreigners find it very difficult, unless you're um, the, the guy who owns IKEA, who, who's been committed to Russia since the 60s, unless you're actually you know, mm-hmm. predisposed to go there, um, then you, you don't because you find it very difficult. And and how much do you think that the 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 international image speaking well the the image in the West of Russia, uh, you know, in terms of when people think about Russia, they think of course of corruption, they think of course of authoritarianism, they, they think of course of this aggressive foreign policy, you know, all of these things that you see in media a lot. Do you think that that image also plays a major role? Uh, plays not a major role, but plays a role in in. Kind of making it making business reluctant to invest there. Absolutely, I mean Warren Buffett, uh, one of the biggest investors in the world, uh, said he won't even look at Russia because of its image. And you have a lot mm. of money that just won't even look at it, let alone you know listen to the arguments, take a speculative punt, uh, punt or whatever. Um, so that cuts you off from from an enormous amount of capital, and. Um, because of its image, uh, whereas on the ground, I mean, and you've got this constant irony talking to the business investment community that the people who do it say, look, it's great. You can make a huge amount of money. The risks are higher, but you get paid for them and you get paid for them handsomely. And mm-hmm. uh, but you, you need to invest a lot of time. And, and the thing with a lot of investment and particularly multinationals is they want to do a cookie cutter. You know, what worked in Spain and what worked in Italy and what worked in India, we just come and do, this is what we do. We just like set up the building and then (laughs) put in the distribution and sell our goods. And you go to Russia and like, you know, yeah, but you have to be friends with Boris as well. And without Boris, it doesn't work. And that's the problem, you know, um, that all these quirks of getting through the system. And again, yeah, and getting saying, and finding and finding people, finding people to do it. Yeah, but then that's that's the the upside. I mean, you have these incredibly talented, hardworking people, because it's like the the. the I think the parallel here is like the Germany post-war, the the Wirtschaftswunder, that the mentality in Germany was that the company, uh, the country is destroyed, the past is irrelevant, uh, and we have to get down and build something that works. Mm-hmm. And they did. And that mentality went on for two, three generations. I mean, one of the problems Germany has at the moment is you've got all these kids um, who don't know that. All they know is, like, you know, extremely efficient, well-working country. And they're not, they haven't got the same work ethic. But you've definitely got that Mm. in Russia. And because it's Russia, if you make it work at all, then the money rains down on you. Um, 
And that's going to last this generation and the next generation, and then they'll be rich and fat and comfortable, and <laughs> it'll stop working. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I think this is you know as we as we move forward to the big twenty twenty four. Uh, again, I think this is going to be something that they're going to have to deal with politically, um, because as you said, I mean, you know, you, you and, and, you know, others, I talk like Mark Galliotti, for example, I, I, I'm pretty positive on Russia's future as well. Just because of so many, so much talent I see, you know, there, um, and so much, you know, vibrancy and activity that I, I can't help but think this is, you know, in, it's a, it's a macro problem uh, as, you know, the environment. Yeah. Let, let me ask you, uh, I've run out of time. So as a last question, yeah. and, and, and actually this sure. has always been, people accuse me of being pro-Russia and, and they criticize it heavily. But my, my perspective on this is like, you know, yes, if you compare, compare Russia today with London today or New York and right. standards, the values, then yes, it falls down heavily and deserves the criticism. But my, my comparison or my perspective has always been Russia 1993 in absolute mm -hmm. chaos to Russia yeah. 2019, where it's a more or less normal country. And I've just seen the most spectacular changes. And of course, there's lots of horrible problems. But I, up until now, I don't see any reason why it shouldn't continue to make progress, particularly because of the quality of the people. And I think that's its saving grace, is the quality of the people. But I also think, and this is my question, don't you think Putin's getting out of touch? Don't you think this whole tactical state-driven thing is he's losing the people? Because, as you say, you've got generations now that don't remember the Soviet Union and that they do remember the boom years and they want the same as in the West, in Germany, uh, as even in Kiev, in, in Ukraine. I mean, everyone was like, why don't we have mm -hmm. a presidential debate? Don't you think he's going to lose it? Well, that's the big, that's the big question. Is he going to have the wherewithal to, to hang it up, right? And figure, okay, the bank, you know, to experiment, uh, is he going to bring a new cadre of leaders up? Uh, or is he going to continue a kind of slow dilute, you know, a slow, bobbing along and more and more out of touch with with you know the population of the country i mean i i am continually impressed protest against local authorities uh, that's been going around you know just in the last couple of days around the 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 landfill dumps yeah. um and demand about of these people of these locals for their own local administrators to listen to them and they do um and i think that the and they do, and they do, but they do with a lot of pressure. And I think that at least at the higher part, you know, the higher echelons of the Russian political elite, I think they need to start listening uh, and really thinking hard about, okay, you know, how do you open up mechanisms to, to the, the address fragmentation of governance? Sean, fascinating yeah. conversation. We should um, uh, do it again uh, regularly. Uh, just because it's a fascinating story. Uh -huh. Thank you very um, much for so, taking the time. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah. <laughs>